been enough movie references yet, so I'm back. <laughs> um, good morning again. Um, as I was preparing for this, which takes me quite a while, um, I'm hoping that it gets easier, but from Mike, what Michael tells me, it, it doesn't really. Um, I, as I was getting ready for this uh, on Wednesday evening, I, I called up a buddy of mine, and uh, I asked him what, if things got really, really bad, if things were difficult, you had to just get up and go, what's in your go bag? I asked him because he served in the military and he's very into outdoorsy stuff and hiking and survivalism and things like that. And he listed a number of things, but the one that jumped out at me was a first aid kit. Um, he also mentioned a hatchet, but I didn't feel like I should bring that into the government building. So we have a first aid kit today. <laughs> uh, exactly. <laughs> Side of caution. Um, and he was, he was pretty emphatic about, you know, he was talking about, you know, what he would bring and why and, you know, what, what the purpose of each would be. And as far as the first aid kit went, he was, you know, pretty, pretty emphatic saying a good first aid kit can save your life in a difficult situation. Uh, lots of them are just glorified grocery store bandage holders, but good ones will have tourniquets, wound sealant, painkillers, antibiotics, things of that nature. Uh, I bring it up. Um, just sort of as a, as a focal point, because we read in the Old Testament how the people of Israel had a covenant with God. They'd made an agreement. Um, God didn't get much out of it, to be honest. It was a, a bad deal on his end. But um, it, was, it was pretty straightforward. You know, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I will be your protector and your defender, your hope and your deliverer, and you will keep my law and remember that you're my people and thereby glorify my name. And it was that obey my law part that all the really interesting stories come from because that one was um, fulfilled with irregularity, shall we say. Um, there was a lot of difficulty in keeping God's law. Uh, it was not always in the interests of man moment by moment to keep God's law, but... The covenant was such that God had promised blessings for his people if they kept it and promised curses if they did not. And we get the sense that God preferred blessing his people to cursing them because whenever things would get off course, we read accounts of God calling a prophet uh, to the unenviable and unpopular task of letting Israel know that they were in breach of contract, that things had gone off the rails, and that the judgment they were promised, that they knew about full well because it was in the contract, would come. God was merciful, God was patient, but he is also just, and judgment would not be delayed forever in the event of continued disobedience. And Isaiah was one such prophet that God did call. Um, he got risen up in a turbulent time in Israel's history. The Assyrian Empire was reaching the height of its expansionist power. Uh, its violent conquests were sort of the political topic of the day, and people were rightfully scared uh, whole cities were burning. Um, some really interesting details on how Assyrians conquered places that aren't even PG-13. So we'll just leave it at that, that people were scared and for good cause. And the leaders in the southern kingdom of Judah were doing everything they could to secure themselves from this threat. They tried to bribe the Assyrians, although they, that didn't work. And they tried to make alliances with the pagan nation of Egypt. That kind of fell through. Uh, they diplomacy, they bartered, they begged, they did all they could, trying to find something that could deliver, 
deliver them from this threat. And throughout all this, Isaiah is calling people back to repentance to the covenant with God, saying, you have a deliverer. There is, in fact, an answer to the situation, and you're ignoring it. You're afraid of these idol-worshipping foreign nations, and you yourselves have become idol-worshippers. You're forsaking the God who delivered you from slavery in Egypt, the God who delivered you into this land that you're now fighting so hard to keep, uh, the God who has delivered you from enemy after enemy, just like the ones you're scared about right now, and yet you're not repenting, you're not returning to him, you're looking for every other possible means by which you might save yourselves and ignoring the one perfect remedy that you know that you have. Uh, idolatry was always a problem for Israel. I mean, you read any cursory examination of the Old Testament, you can see just by sheer usage of topics what a big deal idolatry is to God. The first two commandments are essentially based off of idolatry. You will have no God before me and you will not make a graven image. And so this, this theme is, is developed in a number of places in Isaiah, but the one I wanted to focus on today was in chapter 44, verses 9 through 20. Um, it's sort of a, a divine meditation, if you will, or, or an oracle against idolatry. God is essentially holding up idolaters and the practice of idolatry itself sort of up to a, a microscope and looking at it and saying, well, let's look at this thing that the other nations are doing, the fact, the things that you guys are doing, and wh- how does God see this process? So I'm going to start in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak, and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half of it he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And he falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in, uh, sorry, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? 
bear with me as I juggle paper. The indictment rings through the entire verse. Idolatry is a lie. And it's a lie that has a pernicious, sort of unavoidable power to render us blind to just how absurd it is. And it invariably and always leads to ruin for those who pursue it. The falsity, the, the lie of idolatry is handled quite well just in the narrative itself. We're given this image of a smith. Um, and you know, if, I mean, if you've seen a fantasy movie, you know who the smith is. He's this guy. <laughs> you know, he's, um, he's the person who takes the 20-pound hammer and hits metal until it's the shape he wants it to be. And so you can imagine what that guy looks like. But, you know, we're shown this, this sort of gold standard of human strength working, and what happens? Well, he gets tired. He needs to eat. He needs to drink. Human strength has a limit, even for the strongest of us. And ultimately, it's not the metal god he's making that's going to restore that strength. It's food and water, things he didn't make. Um, we're, then we're shown a carpenter, you know, another example. He cuts down a tree, which he didn't grow, the rain did, and shapes it into a god using tools and whatnot. And we're, we're sort of faced with the absurdity of the situation as Isaiah delves into it. You take half of it and you make dinner. You know, you cook on it. You get warmth out of it. You get food out of it. You get coals out of it. You get waste out of it. And then the other half, well, clearly that should become a god. Um, it's nonsensical to some extent on its face. And can we see the lie when you have to ask, at some point, a carpenter or a craftsman is holding a piece of wood and has to make a call, should this be a god or a stool? And, you know, the stool at least would have been useful. Uh, the, um, the, the wood, when it was still wood actually had a function and a purpose. It, it made food, it, it warmed him, but the idols themselves were without merit. There was nothing to gain from them. And we, we see in the passage that the idols themselves are, are not the source of deliverance. They can't be because they're the fabrications of men, men who are weak, men who fail, men who lie, men who sin. Whereas... With God, we're faced with something prior to us, apart from us, not our creation. In fact, the opposite. We're his creation. And anything we make and try to set above ourselves is, in essence, doomed to fail because all we're doing is reflecting ourselves and deifying it. Even in the passage, it says they make it into the shape of a man with all the beauty of a man and put it in a temple and worship it. Uh, is that God or is that what we want God to be? Um, perhaps uh, an illustration I've used before that, that might prove useful here uh, is something I call the, the story of Bob. Um, so if, if we imagine for a moment that there's a man named Bob who doesn't believe in much of anything, you know, not God, not an afterlife, and he's going about his business one day and some mean people punch him very hard and take most of his money, and Bob is upset at the injustice of this, and then Bob realizes, well, I, I guess I believe in justice, so there's probably a vague impersonal unifying force that creates justice in the world. Uh, and then the next day, the same people punch Bob again and take the rest of his money. And so Bob concludes that while he still believes in justice, the justice provided by this force probably doesn't come in this life. It comes in the next. So on day two, Bob now believes in an afterlife. Um, and then on day three, Bob meets a cute girl who doesn't punch him, which is very nice. And she moves in with him. And she believes that 
the justifying force is actually the spirits of uh, dead space dolphins. And now Bob believes that too. Um, but the problem is they can only be communicated with by crystals that are purchased on late night TV. Uh, Bob having no money takes out a second mortgage. Day four, cute girl leaves Bob. Bob is homeless. Bob is alone. Bob is sad, has no money, and has a bunch of rocks whose ability to contact undead aquatic wildlife may have been slightly overstated. Bob concludes there is no God. <laughs> so that, that's the sad story of Bob. And, and the point is that day by day, man believes or does not believe. There is a God, there is no God. There is an afterlife, there is no afterlife. Space dolphins, maybe not. But the truth throughout this entire four-day ordeal never changes. Only the lie that the man accepted on any given day changed. But the truth was static. And I, I bring that story up because I think, you know, generally for we who, who've bought into the whole Christian thing, idolatry consideration really takes two shapes. Either we, we you know, focus purely on idolatry as well. Anything you put before God is idolatry, which is true. I, I don't want to knock that application. But we can also see it as someone else's problem. Well, that's a problem for a third world pagan people 4,000 years ago and has nothing to do with us. And it's not necessarily. Um, you know, we can, and, and here in the modern West, it's very, it's, we're far removed from the mindset and the culture where, you know, you can get out your ruler and measure the dimensions for a deity and start sawing, and that makes sense. I mean, that is silly to us. But that doesn't mean we're not idolaters. You know, just because we're not physically bowing down to a statue we've created doesn't mean that we are actually worshiping the true and living God of Israel. It might just mean that we're both cultural snobs and idolaters, which isn't necessarily more impressive. Uh, so that's, that's sort of the, the first application tying into us that I want to make, that idolatry is a lie. And historical idolatry may seem like an obvious lie to us, but we're fully well incapable of continuing that lie ourselves in our own unique and terribly special way. And then the, the next sort of point that, that I, God through Isaiah makes in this passage is how this happens. Because it's a lie. You know, you look at the stool and you say, okay, stool or God, it seems like an obvious lie. And yet, historically speaking, humans have manufactured idols as quick as the sculptor's chisicles could churn them out. So clearly, even though here, standing here, it seems obvious, there's something about this process that makes it so we can buy this lie, that we can believe it, that we can be blinded to the point where this is no longer obvious to us that it's a problem. And the verses themselves sort of point us in this direction. Uh, at the beginning, it talks about the idol's witnesses. Um, you know, we just finished a series in Acts, and Jesus talks about how the apostles are going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And here they're talking about the witnesses to the idols, you know, the people who are pushing them, saying, you know, no, these idols are, have power, they protect us. God says they neither see nor know. Later on, further down, he, um, he really sort of drives it home uh, somewhere. Ah, they know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. And then a little later, he concludes, they, they have a deluded heart. When, when you read the Bible 
you, you see these, these sort of active things saying, when people choose sin, when people sin, and, and you can, I, I think sometimes religious and theological types vary over whether this is just a, a natural reality of sin that God set up or a special dispensation where, where God swings a hammer and says, okay, you've chosen sin, I'm going to actively blind you now. Um, it could even be both. But as we sin, as we choose evil, we harden our hearts. We blind ourselves slowly, ritualistically to truth, which makes sense. If you choose a lie, if you swallow a lie, if you eat, you drink, and sleep a lie, why would you be surprised years later when the truth comes along and it makes you vomit? We, as we sink into lies like idolatry, if we, if we are faced with the true God and we'd say, I like the manufactured one better, when truth does come along, we will have desensitized ourselves to it to the point where we no longer recognize it. And, and when we see that hinted at or really spelled out quite clearly in, in the verse from Romans that, um, that Bill read earlier, people claiming to be wise became fools because they substituted the truth of God for a lie. And in so doing, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. See, God's punishing people with that greatest fate of all, exactly what they wanted. You want idols, you want lies, you want truth, you want to be away from this, this burning light of God that might actually make you have to do something you don't want to do. God will let you have that, but you will be changed by making that choice, by staying in that choice. Your heart will crust over and scab over and calcify to the point where when the truth does come, it, it may be very hard to get into that stiff-necked heart that you've cultivated over the years of your life. And, um, and then a, a shorter verse on the same subject that came up recently was in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. And this is just a small snippet, but I wanted to include it for a couple reasons. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, and none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's a, a great summation of the concept, and it's useful because this letter is being addressed to New Testament Christians. Again, this isn't someone else's problem. This is our problem. This is an ongoing struggle. We can and will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin so long as we choose lies over the truth. This is not... Um, a capacity, a human capacity that's lost upon conversion. Oh, well, we can't, you know, have our hearts hardened anymore. No, we can. It's possible. It's a danger. And we're called upon to exhort one another to keep that from happening because once it sets in, uh, it's a lot more work to chip it off. Change is very, very hard. Nobody likes it. Maybe some people do. I don't like those people. I hate it. Uh, um... There are a lot of really hard truths in this book. Uh, there are things in this book that I don't like yet. I'm working on it because I believe it's authoritative over me, and so I'm trying to mold myself after it. Um, that's a work in progress. <laughs> um, but if we go through this book, and incidentally, we don't have to. We can hide from the book and thereby avoid the truth in its entirety and maybe accidentally get a little bit of truth washed up on us if, if we come to church. But if we dig into it, 
we're going to be confronted by a God who asks more of us than we want to give, uh, who wants to give us more than we'd be comfortable accepting, uh, who may not agree with our politics, our culture, our preferences, or our comfort. And the temptation, I know for me at least, is to, rather than bowing to that God represented here, the one that is true, instead ask God to change for me and have God conform to what I prefer. And that is classical idolatry. And the question becomes, where does this lead? Because this process that starts with accepting a lie and continues as we deaden ourselves to it, it goes somewhere. That's, that's not where it ends. We don't just end ignorant and stupid. We die ignorant and stupid. Idolatry leads to ruin. Uh, in, in the passage in Isaiah, it says, those, those who, who make idols feed on ashes, which is a beautiful image of futility. Uh, you know, if you're starving to death, imagine the value and fun of the task of just eating a big bowl of ashes to solve that problem. It's meaningless. It's useless. God talks about how they do not profit. They come to no avail. They don't gain you anything. And perhaps the most reoccurring theme, especially in that, that first paragraph we read, those who make idols, those who serve idols, those who practice idolatry will be brought to shame. They're destined for disgrace. It's not just a, well, this is, this is wrong, or this is a mistake we made. No, it's a lie. It's, in fact, an abomination. God's quite serious about idolatry. And w- what's interesting here is that when Isaiah's writing these words, it really has a double usage because the people in Israel are bowing to idols, and they're also terrified of nations of idolaters. And God's saying, idolaters are nothing. They're going to come to ruin. These aren't just words of, of castigation. This isn't God just saying, Israel, need to stop, although it is that. It's also saying, the things you're so scared of are nothing. The Assyrians will be brought to shame. How many Assyrians are there left on the face of the world? None. God used them to, to punish the northern kingdom, and then they were destroyed. Judah was deported by Babylon. Where are the Babylonians? They've been destroyed. Idolaters will come to nothing. The question is, do we join them as they go down? And historically, you might have been able to say, well, I mean, at least the other nations had an excuse. You know, the truth was in Jerusalem. The Jews weren't, you know, out there passing out pamphlets about God, although they were supposed to live as examples to the nations. But um, we can actually see in Acts chapter 17 that especially now, post-Christ, if that were ever an excuse, it certainly isn't now. Uh, Paul is talking in Acts chapter 17 to the Athenians, and he says in verse 29, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Uh, Spoiler alert, that man is Jesus. Uh, And then also, there's the the verse in Romans we read, which begins with what? The wrath of God is uh, declared upon the unrighteous. I'm just going to butcher it if I try and say it. But it's, it's fantastic language and also mildly terrifying when you consider the implications. But the, the point is that judgment is coming upon a perverse and unrepentant world, which unfortunately is the one we live in. And 
that the, the dividing line on that is whether or not we're one of God's people when that moment comes, whether or not we've accepted Christ, whether or not we've been saved from our sins. And I think in this room, the great danger isn't that we're all going to become Zeus worshippers, um, although the fact is worldwide, there are still plenty of people who are, you know, out and proud Old Testament original variety idolaters, and, and that's a problem, and those people need saved as well. I think in this room, the, the greater challenge and danger is a group of people who confidently say, yes, Jesus is Lord. But our image of Jesus is something that has less to do with the Jesus that is and has much more to do with the Jesus we want. Uh, the, the story of Bob, if you will. Our, our challenge is that as we, as we call upon the Lord, as we look for something to deliver us from the dangerous times over the course of our life, uncomfortable verse by uncomfortable verse, we have altered who our image of God is to the point, and, and most of us I doubt will get there, but the, the danger is we'll get to the point where we throw open the doors of the temple in our heart and we look to, to Jesus, whose name we've called on to save us, and inside that temple there's an unrecognizable abomination that we've made for ourselves. Um, <laughs> the visual image, deliver me. For you are my God. Our challenge then becomes who is this God we claim to serve, if indeed we claim to serve him. And that, that profession is important. It's not without merit. But what are we worshiping? Whom are we worshiping? And that verse in Hebrews, again, is, is fantastic because it gives us a way forward. It says, we, we can buy these lies. We can believe these false things. So, brothers, exhort one another. As long as today is called today. Uh, we, we don't have to do this alone. We don't have to figure out who Christ is in a vacuum. That's why we're in this building together. It's why we meet. Um, it's very easy for one person sitting by themselves to come up with an idea of God that's very comfortable and no one's around to challenge it. Um, so you know, we need to come together on this. We need to be together on this. The, the truth is available and accessible, and we are here to call each other to accountability and to love, and God himself will come forward and make himself known. I, I don't think we're in much danger of, of missing out on Christ because he seeks after us passionately and actively. And... If we seek him in return, I don't, I don't think being fuzzy on a few doctrinal points is going to damn us, but we should seek after him because who he is is important. Uh, he saved us. Who is this God who has saved us? Um, and we have that information in our hands, and pursuing that should be a task of joy and delight and uh, one we should pursue diligently. We ought to seek the whole and uncompromised truth of God together, um, and when that day, the day of ruin comes in that case, we shall find ourselves delivered, and that is a magnificent and glorious thing. Um, I'm going to invite our highly trained and professional musical staff to come back up and, um, and, and play us out on a high note.